Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 142 with my guest, Scott Thompson. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that does not suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, check it out. There's blogs you can read by me and by other people. There's surveys you can take. You can see how people respond to surveys, sharing their darkest, innermost secrets. Um, you can buy stuff to support the show. You can donate to support the show. And um, and you can stream the show. You can listen to it. Um, and I'm sure there's other stuff that I'm that I'm forgetting about at, uh, at this point. But anyway... Um, what did I want to mention? Had a great time in uh, in Toronto this uh, this last week, and um, and this is the episode I I went there to record uh, with uh, with Scott Thompson, and um, I'm a little uh, the the audio snob in me is uh, the sound gets a little distorted at some points, and uh, the audio snob in me is. Uh, agonizing that I'm going to that I'm going to get emails from you guys like what's with the sound but I had no control over that and um I shouldn't have even brought it up look at me not even the 2 minute mark and kicking my own ass um but everybody up there was really great and um I just had a just had a really really great time and uh, love Toronto got to go to the hockey hall of fame see the shrined Bobby Orr. If only growing up, church had made me feel the way I felt looking at uh, Bobby Orr's stick and uh, all that other stuff at the Hall of Fame. It was really, really cool. Um, something else I wanted to mention, and I'm spacing out on what it is. I don't remember. Let's get to... Uh, let's get, I have uh, two quick emails and, uh, and a survey. Uh, compilation I want to read. This is from uh, listener Stacy, and uh, she writes, 
when I listen to your show, it hurts my heart to hear so many men worry about their penis size. Let me just say I'm one of the many women who do not think bigger is better. When I masturbate, my toy is only three inches in length and the width of my middle finger. Um, I should mention she has sausage fingers. I couldn't resist. Uh, I have no idea who she is. Oh, God, I'm, I'm backpedaling. If, if this show had any momentum, what I have just created is a steamroller coming in the opposite direction. Uh, continuing, this tool is fantastic for me, so all the men out there uh, need not worry so much. Lots and lots of women like smaller packages. Thank you for sharing that, Stacey. Um, and this is uh, from a woman who calls herself Ladyfinger. Oh, look at that. From from that email to somebody who calls themselves Ladyfinger. Um, she uh, she writes on 211, uh, we don't have it where I live. I researched it and they say it reaches approximately 90% of the population nationwide. Um, if you go to www.211.org and type in your zip code, it will tell you if it's available in your area. Uh, I've been promoting 211 uh, on the podcast as a local resource for people who don't know if there is free or uh, low-fee uh, mental health facilities in their, in their area, but you have to call from a landline. So uh, thank you for, for letting me know. She lives... Uh, about 45 miles outside of Sacramento and it's not available in her area, but it is available in Sacramento. So there you have it. Uh, I want to read some uh, excerpts from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. Uh, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself um, uh, Punk Queen. He is uh, gay in his 40s about his anorexia. He writes, my body is shitbag disgusting. I weigh 140. Why not 120? Uh, about being a sex crime victim. He writes, I feel sexually worthless and shamed. Um, this is from Chris, who writes about his anxiety. I feel like everyone around me is growing closer to one another while I'm here falling behind. Oh my God, have I felt that before. That's a terrible feeling. Um, this is from Amy Lee Anna. And about her anxiety, she writes, uh, feeling like sitting in your own skin is going to suffocate you. About um, being racially judged, being so different you wish you could scrape your skin raw to change the color of it. And about living with an abuser, she writes, you may take me, but you will never break me. Um, this is from a woman who calls herself Undone. Um, about being a sex crime victim, she writes, every time I see his face, I want to confront him and ask, how could my brother do that to me years ago? Instead, I stand there as he violates me with his eyes every holiday. Well, I'm sending you a big, big hug. Um, I can't imagine how difficult that is. That's got to be. Um, and uh, about her OCD, this one made me laugh. Uh, as as someone is speaking to me, their voice fades away, and all I can think about is how their trash can isn't completely against the wall. It's impossible to have a conversation without making the room as if I want it. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. 
That is very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. Fallen in love with Toronto the last four or five days that I've been here. You guys are so fucking nice. I knew the Canadians were nice, but holy shit. It, uh, it, even like your, your squirrels are sweet. They're just kind of overfed. And the pigeons, I think the pigeons might be flightless. They are so, they're like little tiny mayors walking around. They're quite adorable, but I don't know. There's something really comforting. I, you know, I live in America, and there's something really comforting about being in a city where you know if you fall down and break a bone, you're going to be taken care of. There's, uh, it's a foreign concept to me. Uh, but I, I got here Tuesday because I wanted to... Uh, I got invited by a listener who lives in Alora to come up and take a pottery lesson and get a tour. She, she kept saying, "It's you know, Alora's beautiful. You got to check it out." And it was. It was absolutely beautiful. I got a pottery lesson. We had this amazing dinner. She invited friends over. It was like something out of a French movie. You know, we're all at the provincial wooden table and the pizzas are being brought in, and one person's a glass blower and the other person does pottery, and they're all fascinating and interesting and I'm like I have this feeling whenever I go on the road where my sickness begins to rear its head where the loneliness begins to come in and I suppose it's from years of having been a touring stand-up comedian and I'm sure to the outside observer being a a, a touring stand-up comedian seems like that must be great you're getting your ass kissed all the time couldn't be more opposite they forget to pick you up at the airport the place they promise you you're going to stay is not where you wind up staying it's always some shithole there's excuses made the person you request to not be on stage in front of you is the person opening for you and so when I go on the road I kind of have this anxiety and this dread almost like the city is a person that I'm going to find out either loves me or hates me. And when I first landed in Toronto, the, the car wasn't there to pick me up. They lied about when they were going to be there. Not the festival. This was just the, the, the car company. And so it was bringing up all that stuff. And, uh, but once I got to Allura and I was experiencing just this great feeling of community, that feeling went away. And then they said, oh, we, the person that was going to give you a ride back to Toronto can't make it. We're putting you on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> just all those feelings came up and I could I felt and I didn't want to be a baby because I knew this was my issue I knew what they were you know they they couldn't do it they couldn't do it and so I'm at the the I get dropped off at the the Greyhound bus station and as I start to walk I feel like I'm tripping over something and I look down because we had hiked all day and I have blown out the soles on both of my shoes and so they're flapping like a homeless person, both of my shoes. I'm sliding around on soulless shoes on a Greyhound bus. And I'm like, oh my God, you are such a fucking loser. And then I was like, you know what? There are no accidents. 
you know, look for the beauty in this moment. And so I sat up front in the Greyhound bus, and they got those big windshields. And, uh, and I just checked out the, you know, the, the lights of Ontario as we, as we drove, and we entered the city, and it was beautiful, and it was a smooth ride, and the, the driver was super friendly. And I was like, wow, this is really, this is really beautiful. It's amazing how my head had painted this picture that I was a loser, and it was, it was all going downhill. And then the most Canadian fucking thing happened. We pull into the, into the Greyhound bus depot, and the driver finds out that I'm actually staying about seven blocks away. And in the Greyhound bus, he drives me to my hotel. <laughs> and that was when I was like, no, Toronto, Toronto loves me. <laughs> and so it's good to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm so excited to have our guest when they announced that, uh, that we had secured him as a guest. Um, I was really happy. So now it's really just up to him to disappoint. You know him, uh, you know him from Kids in the Hall. By the way, they're going to be doing a, uh, a, a live run December 4th through 7th. at the, I, the name of the theater escapes me, but it's going to be all new material December 4th through 7th. You know him from Kids in the Hall. You know him from uh, the show Hannibal, and you know him from Larry Sanders. Please welcome Scott Thompson. Either one. Okay. Either Hi one there. is you. Ah, oh, this is not, You know, when you said that when you arrived at the most, you were on a Greyhound bus, mm -hmm. that the most Canadian thing ever happened, I thought, oh, you, somebody beheaded you. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, you know that story? I do. Yeah, well, that's the, see, there's the two poles of Canadians. <laughs> they either drive you to your door or they behead you. And maybe somebody will do both. That's good. We, the, we can manage both of those. That's quite a tricky dance. Give you the best. I love you! Boom! <laughs> so where would be a good place to start with, uh, with your story? You're originally from... Uh, uh, so you were born in Brampton? No. No, where were you born? <laughs> North Bay? No, North Bay. Okay. And then I moved... So to, something on your Wikipedia page was right. <laughs> yeah. Born in North Bay, and I moved down to Brampton when I was nine. Mm -hmm. And that's where the dream died. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was brought up there, and then I uh, went... And the rest, of, you know, the rest was... Yeah, Brampton. And then I went to York University. But let's talk about uh, what, what it was like in your... Yeah, in your... What was, what was your house like uh, house? growing out? Yeah, no, physically the house. I don't give a <laughs> shit about the family. It was a beautiful two-story, white, more off-white home with a lot of nice siding, <laughs> fake flower pots on the outside, and a carport. So we, did, we weren't the rich people. We didn't have a garage. Uh, I have five, four brothers. I grew up in a very rambunctious household. Um, five boys and, uh, my mom, and my mom and her lover dad. Um, <laughs> Why do you say that? I don't know. I just she'd like that. Yeah, makes her see. Oh, it makes me sound frisky. <laughs> well, and she's getting. I know. And sometimes when people get older, they get their 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 governors come off, and she's <laughs> she's not as inhibited as she used to be. And she's telling us a lot of things we don't want to hear. Yeah, but yeah. So a very uh, a wild family. Wild family. Four uh, brothers, yeah. Uh, were you raised in any particular faith? I was raised Anglican. And that's why I love being here. Is this an Anglican church? Yeah. It is? That's why I feel so... Uh, I, I feel very comfortable, although um, I am worried about my jacket back there. I keep thinking, oh, none of those 
no curate's going to take that jacket. But I grew up in an Anglican church. My parents were very religious. My mom was like the altar guild lady, and my father was the head server, and I taught Sunday school, and I spent most of my time in the church basement. Um, in, no, in a good way. That just sounds horrible. Yeah, that sounded like I was dirty. taken down. And, no. Yeah. So, yeah. What was in the church basement? <laughs> sounds horrible. How do we not sounds follow like a, up with that? Sounds like flowers in the attic. There were children there that were being yeah. kept secretly. Yeah. Um, it's like I played in the dungeon quite a bit. <laughs> I, I just... No, that was where the Sunday school was. I taught Sunday school. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I know that's a bit... I did. I taught Sunday school. And I, my thing was I had a big voice. That was when I first performed. I would... I would narrate the Christmas pageant every year. When I was like 10, I had this giant voice, and they'd prop me up in the balcony, and I would read the, uh, like a three-hour, like, uh, nativity pageant. With my father is Joseph. He played Joseph every year. And is that, is that where you kind of caught the, uh, the desire to act? Yes, and then I asked if I could play Mary every year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting hot in my cashmere. Do you mind if I take yeah, it off? Yeah, no, no, go ahead. And I'm not showing off, but it is cashmere, people. <laughs> But it's from the Bay. Bay Days. Are you guys aware of Bay Days? It's an amazing time at the Bay. That's better. Um, can I ask our audio person, do we happen to have any windscreens for the mic? Is for the mics? Okay. No, no, no. It's just the P's and the B's sometimes uh, pop. Pop like that. A little bit. I'm a, I'm a bit of, I'm a bit of an audio uh, uh, OCD with, uh, with the audio. The plosives. I could do a Filipino accent. That always softens the piece. <laughs> <laughs> I said that with love. Betty, Betty, much love. <laughs> People, come on. Relax. So what, what was your relationship like with your, your parents and your, and your brothers? Oh, now I know why I'm sweating. <laughs> um, uh, it was good. Is that uncomfortable to talk about? Well, I mean, you know, it's been, in, with this kind of like... Um, uh, uh, the, the the mental health thing halo over it all it makes it a little makes me a little uncomfortable yeah but I guess that's what you're at you're after isn't it <laughs> Dr. Gil Martin <laughs> mm? who told you about my triggers <laughs> uh, I you know I was the second oldest of five um, it, it was a pretty rough house rough house yeah you know, my father was a, was a disciplinarian, let's put it that way. And my brothers were also disciplinarians. So an awful lot of physical acting out. How's that for being diplomatic? Also known as ass-kicking? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the phrase. And is it, did you, were you the recipient or the giver of most of the ass-kickings? Well, you, you get, I was the recipient, but then you always, you, then you, it's the beautiful thing about physical violence in the family is that you pass it down like, hand, like hand-me-downs. <laughs> you get it from above, and then you pass it down to the child younger than you. <laughs> Till eventually it reaches the, the, the baby, and then by then the sweater is too frayed to wear. And then the parents go, I give up. And then, you know. Yeah. <laughs> then it's back to all the brothers to discipline him. Yeah. But I had a, the best thing. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it gave me um, strength. <laughs> Look at you, doctor. <laughs> Probing like that. <laughs> I, I have so many questions that, uh, that, that I want to ask you. Well, you, you know, Brampton was... Uh, I had a, 
you know, I had one of those child. I was very lucky. Uh, we were talking earlier um, about childhood. I was very lucky to be from the generation that was allowed to run wild. I think that's there was a huge amount of freedom in, in, yeah, in those days. Yeah, I, mean, up I was the, thinking about it today. I read this insane story in the paper about bring your parents to work day, and I just I thought that was the most insane thing I'd ever heard in my life. I'd I think it, it's like children, kids in their twenties who haven't negotiated the, separating from their parents, bringing their parents to work to make sure that they're doing okay, and I thought that was insane. Like I thought, I'd rather those kids, I, I think it's the new beating. I really do. I think <laughs> coddling is the new spanking. That's my soundbite. <laughs> and I thought that was really strange. And I thought a previous generation would think that was mentally ill. Yeah. I mean, I would go, that's sick. I, I, I agree. Not that I agree that it's sick, but it it is so foreign to me. Like when I yeah. see... Um, you know, the school play where the kids are six and it's packed with the parents that all have the video cameras. <coughs> you know, I don't ever remember parents showing up to ever anything. to anything. Like, to, no. You know, uh, my mother barely showed up from my birth. <laughs> like, she outsourced it. Why would we want to come to that? The acting's not going to be very good. Exactly. You wrote it. I'm not going to like your interpretation. Football's on TV. How can you compete with that? I know. Yeah. I, it's weird, isn't do you, it? Do you think that there was a certain uh, amount of forging of character with, with that abandonment? Or is that... Yes. Is that, is that just yes. me trying to no. make lemonade? I, I think, you know, because that's the thing, because when you reach our age, when you start to get up there, you're very afraid of saying those things because then you'll be thinking, the people will go, you're just an old curmudgeon. But then there are times when you kind of go, maybe it's not just that. Maybe it's something even deeper. Like I bet maybe in 1934 or five in Germany that people would go, God, I'm really worried about those kids. They seem to be embracing this weird philosophy. People go, oh, don't be such an old man. They're just Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my worry is that maybe it's something really troubling. I mean, I'm saying that maybe helicopter parenting is the new Nazism. <laughs> Wait, is that too... What? Is, what? Well, I'm thinking you, outside the box, people. Well, you know what? I, I, I think there is a, a certain... Uh, abusiveness is too strong of a word, but helicopter parenting is certainly worrisome because Very. I think kids grow up with this feeling that they are not enough. That, yeah. that there was, and I think the parent, the well-intentioned, thinks that they're, by the amount of attention they give to the, the kid, they're saying, you're so much, yeah. look at how interested I am. Yeah. But kids need to make, they need to fuck up on their own. Yeah, they, they need do. to experience yeah. pain. They need to make their own mistakes and yeah. find their own boundaries instead of everything being scheduled yeah. for them. And I think maybe, like I know from my generation when I grew up, maybe it went too far the other way. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, like bullying definitely went, it was, uh, if I think about some of the things that happened to me, I, I really, they're criminal. There's no question that they are criminal. And today it would be like lead story on CNN, unless Rob Ford was smoking crack with a hooker, but um, which he might be doing right now. Um, I would if I was him. But I love even that your drug addicts have rosy cheeks in Canada. <laughs> it's true. That's good. It's like finding out Santa's a crackhead. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and I feel guilty making fun of somebody who has an untreated, clearly an you untreated You were saying that earlier. Uh, I know. Addiction. I don't. But the, but the, 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 I do, actually. The, the, the low road is just so sparkly. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to resist that human nature that we, we just, we're, we're awful. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> We're awful. I like to think that we have moments of awful interspersed. I know, but yeah. thank God as, as comics that we're awful. Yeah. I mean, there'd be no need for us if people were per- perfect. Like that, once, oh, that's... once human beings are, are, are perfected, we're done. Oh, yeah, we're done. Yeah, well, there's yeah. no need for us anymore because you can't perfect a comedian. No. No. <laughs> no. Business, you just can you just make it worse. We'd be we'd be trying to work the unemployment line, yeah. looking for you, laughs. You, oh would, god, that guy's behind me. Yeah, <laughs> we we would we would start setting fires and going postal everywhere. And so let, let, let's talk about the the stuff that that happened to you that you say you know into t- today would be criminal if you're oh. comfortable talking about well, it. Some of the stuff that the kids did was pretty awful. Um, oh, I I don't know. Um, <laughs> Well, like, I mean, I think the word, you know, I was thinking today because I was reading this, the article about bring your parents to work day and I just thought, wow, that's so sick. And then I thought about my own child and I thought about like, I mean, my mom would throw us out at the crack of dawn and say, come back when you're bleeding. And, uh, you know, and that was it. We ran wild. And when the streetlights came on, you came home and that was paradise. Uh, but sometimes, but the price of that is I have I have broken my wrist three times and my elbow, so that's a lot of cast. I spent a lot of my childhood in a cast. I think that is very key to and my. Were, were were these accidents or were these? Well, people? first one was an accident. My brother and I were racing up a tree. We had two trees and we had a race up. I was trying to beat him, and uh, he was a year younger than me. And we were very competitive in everything. And I hit the branch and I fell and I smashed the wrist and it was very horrible. And then, uh, and a couple years later, I, this is the one I was going to talk about. I was forced out of a tree by a bully. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, he didn't, like, uh, there was me and my friend, and we were up in a tree, and we were out in the woods, and him and his friend, and the, he'd been bedeviling me for a long time. I, I was his main target, and, and there's nothing I could, he just made my life hell. And they came, and we were up in the tree, and they started taunting us, you know, Calling us all the regular names, faggot, and all the all all, all the you know all the um, the names, etc. And we weren't too young. We knew we both were. We, we both ended up that way. But um, you know, they know. Kids know, and everyone wants to pick on the weaker kids. And gay kids are always seen as the weaker kids. And uh, and I was quite high up, like quite high. And uh, this is how terrified I was, and how. Deep down, I felt that I, in, in many ways, I, my self-esteem was so low. Like, I mean, look at kids today, and they have such high self-esteem. They're like an alien uh, species to me. They're like indigo children. I just, I really don't know how to relate. Like, you know, because when I was growing up, self, I, this is a joke of mine. I'm going to go into scripted material. But <laughs> self-esteem was something you achieved in spite of your childhood. Not because of it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. I, I completely agree. And by the way, you need to meet some of my younger listeners because many of them struggle with, with self-esteem. So there is a yeah. large portion yeah. of and, young and people I mean, out there. You know, and, and when I was a child, a gay child, like a, especially a gay boy, was the lowest of the low. That is the bottom of the social ladder. So the faggot is the... And I knew that. And so in, in many ways, you kind of feel that you deserve all this 
heaped on you. And I, I look at particularly young gay kids today. I am so jealous of their life. I can't stand it. I mean, can you imagine? I can't stand it. Could you imagine a gay kid in our era being no. elected king of the prom and going with no, his boyfriend? No, that's called a dead kid. I mean, <laughs> that's just, that's science fiction. Yeah. It, it's just, it just, it's, it's, I, I, and I cannot, I, I honestly can't really believe it. And I'm not certain that it will stick. Really? No, I'm not certain because history is filled with societies turning on a dime. All you need is, is, a, is something terrible that is linked to that group, whether it's gays or Jews or whoever it is, the, all the traditional targets, and, and, and then society will switch like that. I mean, you look at the history of gay people in the world. Germany at the, in the 30s was the most, that was the promised land for homosexuals. To think about that, and then within what? A, ten years, the Promised Land, Berlin was it had more oh, gay bars. Oh, okay, pre-Nazi, pre-Nazis. Oh, okay, I was but, like, what books? No, but as the Nazis, reading? and and it was like golden. It was the, it was the paradise, yeah. and much like Sochi was in Russia, um, ten years, fifteen years ago. But then you, and, and then you know, ten, fifteen years later, gay people are being gassed. So. You know, I don't think that's going to happen. But you know, even like the history of homosexual liberation. Uh, you look at, um, like, like the 70s when I was a little boy. I mean, you could, things were really, really moving forward. I mean, much like we're at right now. And, um, and then AIDS hit. And society turned on the dime. And I watched us in, come, become demonized and, and become subhuman in, in a matter of years. Like, very, very quickly. So... That's why, like, I mean, and maybe, you know, and maybe I, I, I will eventually accept it, and I, and I want to, because I know it's important, I, I need to, uh, but right now I'm still just willing to have a, like a truce, not exactly peace, but truce. Don't ask, now. don't tell kind of a thing. Well, I'm just going, okay, I, I, I think this is going to hold, but I'm not sure, certain. Not able to relax yet. Not quite. You know, like, well, you know, if you think about it, you've experienced more years of it being a terrible thing. Oh, absolutely. Than, this than is this new thing. I think it's only like two or three years old where this suddenly there was a societal a shift that happened. It seemed to be overnight where it was no longer cool to hate gay people. And that was not remotely the case when I was the kids in the hall were on television or any of that stuff. Every appearance I ever did was always the first 10 minutes were to relax people. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I should finish my story, shouldn't yes. I? But so this is the thing. I mean, when I, when I, sometimes when I tell this story, I try to make myself look better by saying that he pushed me out of the tree, but he didn't actually. He just told me to jump. And I jumped. I mean, that's how sad I was as a child when I think about it. That's how pathetic I was. Do you know what I mean? Like, he just said, if you don't jump, and I'm 20 feet, I'm high, I will come up and I will push you. So I jumped. And I smashed my arms. I mean, they were broken in half. And now today, that would be, the police would be involved, et cetera. But in those days, my father m met his father. He called him, and, they, and I have no idea what happened. 
or what my dad said, but that boy never bothered me again. And I, I don't know, but that was how it was done. The idea of authorities or bringing people in was just not part of the dialogue. What, as you recount that, do, do any kind of feelings come up in you? Yeah, it's painful. Because, I mean, I have a lot of those experiences in my child, but this is the only one I'm willing to discuss publicly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, because it makes me, I realize how uh, deserving of that kind of treatment I believed I was. And does that... Because in my day, you have to remember, when I'm young, homosexuality was a mental illness. I mean, it was a mental illness. And that was what I was taught. That was what I saw everywhere. That's what the psychiatric so community classified you, it you as. You know, and, and then I thought, well, I can, if I'm gay, I can't also have another mental illness. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, no, I, I'm, I'm, I, I couldn't have two. I'm not deserving of a no, second that would, one. No. That's greedy. God's not going to give me two. Um, <laughs> and I knew in my heart that being gay wasn't a mental illness, but... You don't really know it in your bloodstream and your bones. And, and that, I don't know if that can ever truly be expunged. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there, so, there, there are certain things, I think, that kind of tattoo your soul as, I, I, as a child. That Yeah, you can undo a tattoo, but it takes a lot of fucking and work. And the skin's never the same. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and, I, and the thing is, you know, that was very much like frontier justice when you really think about it. I don't know if my dad threatened him. I hope he did. And I've asked my father about it since, and he, he has blocked it out. Really? He can't remember what he did or meeting him or what he said. So I hope he punched the shit out of him. <laughs> because this is the thing, like, you know, I look at today... And I look at the reaction today, that child would be dragged into the papers, you know what I mean? Yeah. He'd be on CNN, Dr. Drew would weigh his stupid head in, you know what I mean? <laughs> stupid head in? You know what I mean? Oh yeah, his opinion, that's what I think of him. Um, you know, people would be, they would, just, and I don't think that does anybody any good. I don't think dragging a child on television to talk about their bullying does that child any good. It makes it worse. It's about the parents, not the kid. I, you bring I, your I, kid on like that, you are continuing the abuse. That's what I believe. It's about you. It's like, back off. Are you able to have any kind of compassion for the kid that did that? Or is it still just too painful to, to have any feeling for that, that kid? That child was Rob Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was way more Doug Ford. But um, I guess, I, I mean, maybe I'll find it right here. Um, I mean, he's, he's one person in my past that I have a difficult time. There's a couple of others. Um, and I'm not saying you should. Well, I'm I think just, you I'm should. I'm just curious. I do think you should because I have no idea. I try to think about these certain boys that made my life hell. I mean, really hell. And I try to imagine what their home lives were like. And so I try to imagine, you know, what made them that. Because I don't think of, I think of bullying as the same. A bully is the same thing as a person being bullied. I do think it's the same thing. And um, so I guess, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't dwell on, I don't dwell on those, those incidents any longer. Are, are you comfortable talking about uh, what happened at the elementary school that, uh, that you went to? Oh, boy. <laughs> How did you? <laughs> oh, Lord. Wikipedia, Scott. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, I have spoken about it before, but I, the last time I did speak about it, I, I kind of felt um, used. Not that I'm saying you're going to use, do you know what I mean? And that's my own fault. Um, I felt that I was, it, it, made, it made me, it, it put me into a place that I really, I don't know, it, it's an upsetting thing, um, yeah. definitely. It's, it's, it's definitely, I guess it's a seminal moment in my life, yes, for all of us. Um, yeah, you can ask me about it. <laughs> I guess you have. Um, I was in a shooting. <laughs> I know I shouldn't laugh about it. But, you know, I saw... <laughs> well, here's the thing. <laughs> have you ever seen that show, Enlightened? Mm-mm. I watched this show, Enlightened. I mean, and, and she talks about... Uh, this horrible thing that's happened to her. It might not even been enlightened, but I think it was. And then kind of expresses this horrible thought that it was the worst time of her life, but the best time in her life because, and it might not even be this character, but because they survived. And that's the thing that I've always, I've had a hard time reconciling with my whole life is why I survived that day. And, uh, you know, and, and also having to, Thinking, I used to think to myself that there's something wrong with me, that it was the day that I, it, it, it's, it's truly one of the, it's the worst day, but it's also the best day of my life because I lived. And I think in many ways that event and other events, but particularly that one, is, is sort of responsible for some of the template of my life, which is racing towards danger. Really? Yes. And maybe that, I mean, is that a mental illness yet? I don't know. Because uh, <laughs> everything's being, being, you know, um, uh, symptomized nowadays. Um, because, and this is the thing that I'm, I, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but I'm going to try. And I, and I appreciate you trying to do that. And it makes me, because I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed by it. Why? Because it makes me feel like, like I'm a, like a freak that, I, I, you know, because when you, serve, when you race into danger... And you come out unscathed, or what you think is unscathed, you feel it's the best drug on earth. You know, I had a, a previous guest on the show who was a gang member, and he said, there is no better high than getting shot at and living. I have to agree with him. <laughs> it's, I, I have to agree. Can, can we back up for one second because I just want to ask you a question if you're comfortable talking about it. When you say that you ran towards the danger, can you explain what you mean? Uh, okay. Well, this is very embarrassing. Uh, well, because w- uh, when I was coming to school, I was late and... Uh, um, I remember coming in, 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 the doors opening, and all the kids running by me. And uh, I, I never really remembered this until, it's only a few years ago that I really remembered a lot of, some of the things that had happened. And uh, I, I, they all went running by me. And in my memories before, no one said anything. But now I realize that they did. And that someone was screaming that he's got a, there's a guy with a gun, and he's killing pe- people and all that. But I... I didn't care. I thought, if there's something exciting, I'm going to see it. Because when you're that age, and you're in Brampton in the 70s, things like that don't happen. That's not real. It's not possible. So I continued. Even though I know now I heard them say, get the hell out, I continued. 
risking my life because I just, I just had to see it. And then I remember coming down the hallway and I was at the corner, it was like an H, and I was right at the, where the crossbar of the H is, and I heard the gunshots and screaming, and uh, I stopped, and then I kind of remember thinking like, oh, you screwed up, this is, and then a teacher uh, opened the door and said something like, you know, get the fuck in here, I never heard a teacher swear, so I knew it was serious. And, uh, and then he pulled me into a class and I hid there for 45 minutes. But in that way, that's what I mean, that I heard that there was danger and I ignored it and went there anyways. And I think I've been doing that my whole life. Even like when I came out publicly the way I did, I was like going, I dare people to love me. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like going, I'm going to throw all this shit down and if you can, I, I dare you to see past it. And that's like, it's very was, much, was everything's it, a confrontation. Was it the manner in which you came out? Yeah, I think I came out in a, yeah, in a brutal way. Did you come through saloon doors when you came out? Absolutely. Big chaps and spurs <laughs> on my heels. <laughs> think, what, what do you, I think it's like all, all, I think they're all ways of me to like say I'm a man. I think that's part of it. I think that's kind of beautiful. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I, Cause it's like going David and Goliath. It was for me, you know. You know, is I'm sure the audience feels the same way. Listening to your story is, we are almost wondering what do you have to be embarrassed about? You're you have like this, I don't know, like this shining spirit that's <laughs> that's admirable, but but you you find shame in it. Where it's like you got balls, man. I guess I'm embarrassed that I didn't. That I was, uh, that I would be so stupid. But as a child, I just could not accept that I wouldn't be at the center of everything. <laughs> I just couldn't accept it. Like, if there's going to be, if there's a massacre going on, I'm seeing it. <laughs> wow. So maybe in a way, I, I do. For, I realize now that I guess in a way there is there's something admirable about that. I mean, I'm not afraid of a fight. Um, that's for sure. Um, Do you think that was kind of forged in the house that you grew oh, up in? Oh, absolutely. There was so much? Oh, God. I mean, the way I grew up, everything was settled with fists. How were you with verbal confrontation? You know, I'm, I'm good at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you want to say? <laughs> Bring it on. Uh, I've already got my sleeves rolled up. <laughs> Let's talk about the... the, the Evolution of you becoming I'm assuming you're comfortable with your sexuality I am um, let's, let's talk about the evolution of that From when you first um, knew you were gay To how you felt about it To maybe your first positive experience To where you are today If there's an arc to it well, Which I imagine there is You know, I'm very lucky In that even though I came out In the worst time for gay men uh, At the height of the AIDS epidemic Um uh, okay, with the exception of the Middle Ages. Um, <laughs> I, I was very lucky in that I, I was, I just, uh, I came out late, like 23, 24, and I think that's what saved my life, because I think I would have quite possibly have gotten HIV and be dead. Um, and so I think in some ways my incredible self-loathing <laughs> saved me. <laughs> uh, shout out to self-loathing. <laughs> You know, oh, yeah, and I mean, those are my people. <laughs> you know, nowadays you don't have the, that excuse, but um, 
and, and then the thing is, it was a nightmare because, you know, you spend all this time trying to accept yourself. And I went to acting school, for God's sake, and I still wouldn't come out. I just was, it was just too awful. When did you know you were I knew when I was very small, like seven or eight. I remember very distinctly one Lent. I would just, you know, God, usually... What, a, what I, awful timing. I would give up bananas every year. And then I realized, oh, this is wrong. No wonder I like bananas. <laughs> So one year I decided I'm just going to give up thinking about cocks. <laughs> but I couldn't. Because every time I'd have a banana, I, you know. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you remember thinking or feeling when you did decide to, to come out? And, and this is before Kids in the Hall were big, right? Yep. Yeah. It was very around, it's similar. Well, before we were big, but it's all around the same time. I mean, I went to school, and then I graduated, and then I started telling people that I was bisexual. And, uh, Putting I had a, your toe in the pond. Yeah, exactly. And I had a girlfriend at the time and all that. Um, as I said, I wasn't very good at it. Um, and, and then uh, I, it was actually, in a way, quite thrilling. Because I knew that if I did this, that I would be one of the first. And I liked being first. I mean, very competitive. So there was the part of me that knew, was horrified by it, but the other part of me was like going, if you do this, you'll be first. And that's exciting. And you'll have a chance to forge a path that no one's really forged before. And that really intrigued me. I didn't, I thought the path would be easier and, and more paved with gold. But the <laughs> truth is, there's no money in first. <laughs> it's all in third. Not even second, third. Shout out to Ellen. Anyways. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and yeah, I was quite... And, I, and then I, what I was most astounded by was the reaction from my own kind. That was the thing that hurt me the most. That kind of broke my heart. Can you that I was not universally loved and carried around on a litter everywhere I went. <laughs> in fact, I was kind of ignored and demonized in a way. Why? Because I think gay men at the time, I mean, we're working through this, were so consumed with self-loathing that they could not possibly identify with someone like themselves. Coming out and being public, you mean? Well, everything, even even identifying with a fellow homosexual, you just can't. That's why gay men have, have always identified with women. They don't, you know, it's it's much, it's just much more acceptable. And um, and I think as as we move forward, as this this process continues, uh, gay men will actually be able to embrace other gay men, and that will be a wonderful thing. But it was not really the case with, my, with me. I mean, there was certainly a subset, a small group of real, that did. But the vast majority were kind of embarrassed by me. And a lot of them were very uptight and very upset about certain things that I portrayed and certain things that I said. Because at the time, I came out in a time when it was very polarized. And activism was, was trying in many ways to, this is difficult to say, but activism and art aren't necessarily friends you know what I mean social activism can hurt art because art has edges 
And it's not about doing, always being positive. And so I came out in that whole era where everything had to be positive because gay men were, were, being, were dying like flies and we were being demonized. So everything had to be positive. And comedy is not about positive. Yeah. Comedy is about the ugliness. You, take, you turn over the rock and you see what's under it. You bring things out of the darkness. That's not good for people that are so trying to change the world. Yeah. That they don't, they don't work. They don't, they don't go together. And so a lot of people thought I was uh, the enemy. And, and things like Buddy Cole, my character Buddy Cole, my extremely effeminate philosopher character, a lot of people hated him and, and really were demon and said it was terrible what I was doing. Did that hurt? Very much so, because he's like, he's smarter than me. And, and, and also I saw such incredible dysfunction among gay men and, and such denial and delusion, like going, do you really think that effeminacy isn't everywhere? Do you really think that you're so butch? Why don't you tape your voice and listen to it? You know what I mean? I'd be constantly told, I'm very offended by that effeminate portrayal. I'm like, listen to you! Do you have a mirror? <laughs> And I mean, and when you really, you really parse that, that's really saying that effeminacy is disgusting and femininity is disgusting. So it's like a subset of misogyny, really. And uh, so I was just confused by it. I mean, this is something I try to say without any bitterness, and I'm going to attempt it. <laughs> this, is like, this is like walking the Niagara Falls without a harness. This you know, like I was never covered in, in any of the gay papers. I was ignored. Wow. Because I said things that went against the emerging gay establishment. As yourself or as Buddy? Both. Okay. Both. Like, I, things I said that I was just like, like I was never in extra. I was never. Never covered me. I was, I was on the cover of, like, Advocate and out in, like, the beginning of my career. And then I was never written about again. I've never been discussed in any way by GLAD or any of those people. I've been complete. I've been kind of snipped out. And that hurt like crazy. Does it still hurt? Yes, it does. I mean, yeah, so I didn't, I, I fell. I just fell into the, wall, into the Niagara Falls. I, I hit the maid of the mist. <laughs> it's nothing like it used to be, but it's certainly... Yeah, there's something there. Because I, I'm just trying to follow my muse. And, you know, I can't help where she takes me. And, uh, and, and, and comedy, I, I believe in comedy so much. It's what's kept me sane. It, you have to look at the darkness. And, and all marginalized people, as they emerge from the darkness, are going to be bringing a lot of baggage. That's just the way it is. And I, I think that's why in living color worked, is because they made fun of, Absolutely. of themselves. It, it w nobody would have watched it if it would have just been positive po portrayals yes, of, of people. Yes, and you exactly, whatever it is, black people, gay people, whatever, you ha there's going to be baggies. There's going to be um, uh, pathologies, things that are very difficult to discuss in polite society. And, 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 uh, and, but that's the way it is, and that's what comedy does. And, and I think that's a way actually to to win over people because they once you see that a group of people have a sense of humor about themselves you realize oh they're human yeah yeah once you once someone makes you laugh you can't really hate them and that was what i thought i'd go like wait how can you hate buddy like he's hilarious you know what yeah. i mean yeah 
And, 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 I, and I look at the kids in the hall, like four straight guys and me. I think, I think in many ways what we represent, we, we, the healing of gay men, straight men and gay men, they had to forgive each other. Well, we had to forgive you. <laughs> we have nothing to feel bad about. <laughs> But, you know, um, but I, I try to look at it philosophically now, and I also try to look at my own, my own role in it and my own underlying pathologies, which is that I, I love a fight. So maybe deep down, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Is that healthy? It makes perfect sense to <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. So like, I'm trying to be honest about that. Yeah, um, you've been incredibly honest. and I, 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 Seriously, <laughs> I really appreciate it because sometimes... Um, it, it can be difficult with a, a, a guest, particularly some, someone who's very well-known, because they feel like they don't have anything to gain by being on a podcast no. that isn't, doesn't have a huge reach. So it's right. like, um, I feel like you're, you're giving I mean, you're not yourself. Mark Maron. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, feel, I can I, push your triggers, too. It's it's all good. They, actually, his podcast inspired this one, so it's there. Uh, you go because he gets into it. Yeah. Oh, uh, he does. I, I uh, envy his his lack of fear of confrontation. Yeah, I, I envy that. Not to his degree. No. But, no. No. Yeah. Even I, I it's I'd like I, a spoonful of. Even it. I go, Mark. Okay, I'm not going there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what that uh, that sound means? It's time to give our our sponsor a little bit of love. And our sponsor uh, is actually a charity uh, this this week, um, and he's one of my best friends in the world. His, uh, his name is Jimmy Pardo, and uh, he does an awesome podcast called uh, Never Not Funny. Jimmy was also one of the first guests on the, on this show, and um, he does this uh, podcast-a-thon every, uh, every year to, to raise money for a charity called Smile Train, and it's happening uh, this year, the day after Thanksgiving on November 29th. And it's from uh, noon to midnight Pacific time. And uh, what Smile Train does is it provides free cleft surgery to hundreds of thousands of poor children in developing countries. And it trains doctors and medical professionals in 87 countries. And um, uh, there's a new guest every half hour. Last year, they raised $114,000 on the night of the event. Um, Some great guests this year. there's going to be uh, Zach Galifianakis, Pat Oswalt, Andy Richter, Joel Stein, Scott Aukerman, Doug Benson, and uh, one of my favorites, radio legend uh, Phil Henry, who was also a guest uh, on this show. And um, the show is going to be streamed live at pardcast.com. That's P-A-R-D-C-A-S-T dot com and laughster dot com. Um, L-A-F-F-S-T-E-R. And uh, I'm also going to be a guest. I'm going to be on, I think, around uh, like between 2.45 and 3.15 um, Pacific uh, time, assuming assuming they're running on time. And uh, so uh, don't forget to uh, log on to podcast.com on November 29th from noon to midnight. And uh, check out Smile Train at smiletrain.org. Let's talk about um, when you got sick. Oh, yeah. When did, when did that happen? Four years ago. Uh, four years ago, I was uh, living in Los Angeles, and uh, things weren't going very well. And then I found a way, that, and I thought, they can't get worse, and they did. Uh, I had cancer. I had non-Hodgkin's uh, lymph, gastric lymphoma uh, in my stomach. Um, and that was, and I woke up, I, I started having pain in my stomach, and then I, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really honest. I'm going to, okay. 
this, I've never talked, but this is what I believe. I, I woke up one morning with pain, and I was writing Death Comes to Town with Bruce and Kevin. We were the ones that were in charge of beating out the story. And it was like, you know, things were finally turning around for me. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to get a mini-series. It was like, because the kids in the holler, that's what I love more than anything. And uh, so, you know, we were doing this mini-series, Death Comes to Town. And then, wow. I know. And then... Uh, could have been called Death Comes to My Stomach. Would have been really ironic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, this is the truth. It makes me, maybe, I don't know if it makes me seem crazy or not, but it's true. Um, I was, uh, it was, I was watching television at night. This is how it happened. And, uh, you know, things hadn't been well. I've been, my health had been failing for quite a while. And then, uh, um, there were gunshots outside my window, and I heard like about 12 of them, like bang, 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 and then pause, and then bang, 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 bang. And because I lived in a bad neighborhood, and uh, uh, I went into shock. Um, and I, re- it, I remember, uh, w- well, it was like I was like a kid again. I was back in the school, and I had never heard gunshots since that day. And uh, I, um, well, I just remember going to shock and that feeling, that, that familiar feeling that, that, that shock gives you, that comfort that it, it surrounds you in. And I remember very clearly everything in slow motion and going, I've got to find a really thick wall to go against, and that's the thickest wall. I remember sliding down the wall. And then I remember the smell in my uh, nostrils of the gunpowder. Wow, I, so it was close. It was very close. And uh, I, I, I knew what it was, and I, I, I just like I gotta stay here. I gotta be against this thick wall. And um, um, anyways, I, I, the, I did. The night went on, and then and the next day, I went to. Uh, we were writing with Mark and Bruce. I, when I woke up the next morning, I had pain in my stomach, like literally. Uh, the sound of the gunshots triggered my cancer. I don't know if it's a complete coincidence, but that's the facts. Uh, I believe that certain things in my childhood, certain traumatic events, laid the groundwork for the future. That I don't think I think of cancer as kind of almost like a like a like a thing, like a like a spirit or some sort, like a kind of a, and it will enter you. And then it will just wait for the right circumstances. And it has a lot of time. And I believe that certain, those trauma, I think is the one, is the missing link on cancer. It's, you know what I mean? There's, there's tobacco and there's too much food and booze and all these things, stress. But I think trauma is huge. And, and so I, I believe that all these things happen and then the rest of my life I, I, I basically was serving cancer. Gathering all the right things, you know, a period of drug abuse and the period of this and, you know, and trauma and stress. And, and then that when it heard those gunshots, cancer went to go time. And it literally was bang, bang, bang in my stomach. And you, you, you hold all your fear there. And I, I believe that there's been this fear that, and that, and, that, and fear, turned into cancer. And how long did you have the pain in your stomach before you knew it was cancer? Oh, I was, that's the one thing. I, I was very lucky because I went right away. Uh, I, I, and I knew. 
I didn't know it was cancer. I knew it was something serious. My doctor first told me that he thought it might be, you know, um, acid reflux, and that's always the go-to. And then um, I uh, said, nah, it's not. He put me on some medication. It didn't work. And I said, no, it's not. Then he, he, put a, he sent a camera into my stomach, uh, piloted by the crew of Fantastic Journey. And um, <laughs> Raquel Welsh was sent into my stomach, a young Raquel Welsh. Oh, she does look amazing. She could still pilot the tiny craft, but <laughs> in a fur bikini. And, um, <laughs> and, and they found that my stomach was filled with blood. And that wasn't a good sign. And he knew that there was something up. And then they... <laughs> They had to send another one in. And then they, I woke up. My, you know, my best friend flew from London to be with me. And they said, you have uh, cancer. And that was it. I mean, you, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get out of L.A. And that sort of was, that was my reason. And I didn't have health care. So I had to come home. What did it feel like having your friend there? The, the best. The and he knew. Lion. I called him. Paul Agnew's his name. And, I, and he knew in the, from my voice that it was serious. And he flew over the next day. And that was, I, would, I, I, I can't imagine being told that alone. It's terrifying. It takes a long time for it to sink in. You know, he said I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then he said cancer. So in my mind, because you're still a little drugged up, I was thinking, oh, I don't have cancer. I have lymphoma. I didn't really know what lymphoma was. And for those of you that don't, it's, it's, um, it's a blood cancer, or a, it's your immune system. So it's like leukemia. It's one of the liquid cancers. Yeah. And it's your, your immune system turns on you. And when you can't get a better metaphor, like, you know, like, it's literally your immune system, your, your, your you know, your, your protection, literally. Your armor starts kicking your ass. Yeah, exactly. Your, your bulletproof vest starts firing bullets into you. And uh, so uh, I don't know where I was going. And then, uh, yeah, so then I, I'd come home and uh, I started, you know, uh, I had, like, a lot of chemotherapy and six months of it and then and then I had to do the Kids in the Hall <laughs> miniseries and I did it quite ill but it was the best thing I could do I mean I was quite ill and by the end of it I was in a wheelchair and all the rest of it but I swear to you chemo radiation you know in that miniseries and the love of your friends and family those are the four things that and cured I, me I would imagine the, the rest of the guys were very supportive and they really were and um, they, they fixed the, they changed the schedule for me so that I could finish my chemotherapy and do this miniseries you know um, and then of course the day I finished I went right into radiation so the whole thing was scheduled around my treatment that was pretty cool um, but I, I really believe that one of the greatest things to stave off mental illness or and this sounds very old-fashioned but it's keeping busy <laughs> i know you sound like you got to keep busy but i think there's a lot to it you know and if you're focused on on a goal like when i have a goal to accomplish i i find i'm quite good so i always have to set a goal um you know and, and I think there's, there's something uh, about the ruminating negative mind that, that can really sap our energy. Oh, it'll make you sick. A absolutely. You know, like even like I look, think of like self-loathing and I go, I'm sure that's part of it. When you hate yourself, your body's going to hear that. Your body's a joiner. It doesn't like to be left <laughs> no, out. it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it hurt. It was like, you know, they just went, eh, this guy hates himself. Why shouldn't we? And... Uh, 
And then after, how long after it did you find uh, that you'd gone into remission? Oh, I was extremely lucky. Um, they told me that I'd gone into remission um, almost the last day of shooting. It was, it was actually beautiful. My doctor, I called my doctor. He said there was no sign of cancer. And uh, What'd that feel like? I felt pretty damn good. <laughs> pretty damn good. And, it may have uh, been the most obvious question I've asked in the I history know. of the podcast. But it even felt better because I was in drag. And, uh, really? Yeah, I was Heather Weather, the weather girl in the miniseries. And we were doing this scene and, uh, and with Bruce, yeah. who's the, he played the mayor, the crazy mayor of our town. <laughs> Prescient. And... Um, we have this scene where we were in the at the very end of the movie when they're all my characters died except for Krim, um, which also kind of freaked me out. But then she's in heaven or whatever you want to call it with Bruce in the afterlife on a bus, and they're headed towards the afterlife. And we were lovers in the story, so and so it was very. We had to take the bus. We had to go to. We had to drive very. We had to circumnavigate the lake to come back. Not a lot of roads where we were shooting. So for like, we had this like 10 minute, 15 minute ride and Bruce held my hand the whole time and I kind of like wept a little bit. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> but it was beautiful, it was. Like, because you know, because in, in, in the characters we were like lovers, so, you know, um, he just held my hand and it was really, really nice. Um, yeah, and I must say that after, this is the thing about cancer and particularly, you know, like I had a lot of side effects. Chemo's really awful i mean i mean i was reading today about i had a, this morning i had a little cry i'm sure you all know that little boy in uh san francisco that they made him bat kid kid who, the leukemia kid who had leukemia and the whole town made him think he was the batman i just thought that's the greatest you know i mean yeah. but I, I don't know where i was going there but <laughs> um oh yes afterwards this the you know this is the thing about cancer is or any kind of like really uh, traumatic um, health event when you come out of it. Once again, I beat it. So, but that to me, I did say to myself, this is the last time I take on, I mean, not that I'm, I'm sure going to take on another Goliath, but um, I thought, I'm not going to chase it the same way. I have a feeling that it will come to me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I stopped. Like, it changed my performance. Like, I, once I started doing stand, I started, I said, I'm going to really, when I'm better, I'm going to start doing stand-up seriously. Because I, because one of the great side effects of chemotherapy is I don't give a fuck now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's not like in any nihilist way of any kind, because right. I care deeply, but I don't really care what people think of me. And that was what everything before was I wanted them. I go, if you love me, if that's fine, but I don't need it. And that's the one thing that beating cancer, that's the, the best thing it ever gave me, was I feel kind of, I feel like, what are you going to throw up? Come on, come on. What do you got for me? That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for um, taking time thank out of your you. schedule to come share this and, was, and to be uh, this was enjoyable good I'm, I'm glad you liked it I know uh, I, I loved it and I know the, the audience loved it too ladies and gentlemen Scott Thompson <laughs> thanks so thank you that's, oh, that's nice thank you <laughs> thanks thanks very much thank you thank you guys for uh, for coming out I appreciate it Many, many thanks to uh, to Scott for uh, a really great conversation, and I'm so uh, 
I'm just so thankful that he he got so open and vulnerable and and um, shared so much so much stuff. Uh, and by the way, afterwards, he said, "I thought you were going to ask me about my brother." And I said, "I don't know what what about your brother?" He said, "My brother was a schizophrenic who committed suicide." Apparently, one of the reasons why he was invited to be a part of the festival, the uh, Rendezvous with Madness um, film festival. But, you know, as I look back on it, I'm like, ah, I love the conversation that we had. And so we've agreed to maybe do a second parter and uh, and talk about that and maybe some other stuff that we didn't uh, we, that we didn't get to. But I loved it. I loved it. And thank you to the listeners that came out and supported the, the group recording and the uh, that live event. Um, and thanks to the, the people at... Um, Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival for inviting me up there. Um, before we take it out with some emails and some surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can go to the website, mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And uh, you can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. Once you set it up, you don't have to do anything um, until you decide to cancel it hopefully you won't, uh, or your credit card expires. Um, you can also support the show financially by shopping at Amazon through our search portal. Amazon gives us a couple of nickels, doesn't cost you anything. It's on the homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. And uh, you can support us uh, non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating, uh, write something nice about it, and um, and spreading the word through social media. That really helps uh, spreading the spreading the word about the podcast. I know a lot of you uh, guys turn your friends onto the podcast, and I appreciate that. And um, and you can transcribe an episode. Uh, email me at mentalpod at gmail.com. God bless those of you that uh, donate and, uh, and transcribe and do all the other good shit. I really appreciate it. Um, I think that's it. Let's get to some emails and surveys. This is from um, a listener who, um, how does she want to be referred to as? Do, 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 do. I should have looked at this. Uh, Kat. She wants to be called Kat. Um, she writes, uh, Hey, Paul, I'm emailing you to thank you. The, this podcast has really made me feel more comfortable about my past trauma. Although though these podcasts have been triggering, they've been soothing at the exact same time. Episode 119 literally made me cry from relief and sadness. I was molested by my brother from ages 7 to 9. Uh, he's 8 years older than me. We both grew up with uh, an alcoholic father. I knew we were doing something wrong, but I didn't realize what until I saw an America's Most Wanted episode. I confronted him, and he told me he was just teaching me how to say no. I know that was a lie. Until 16, I repressed that memory. Then I started cutting myself and taking unprescribed pills. I feel like the sickest part was that my brother has been more of a father figure. After the abuse stopped, I believe he was regretful because he possibly was taking out past trauma he's experienced onto me. I've never told anyone this. My parents don't know, my boyfriend doesn't know, and my brother and I have never talked about it. I feel like a disgusting person for feeling like my molester as a child is one of my best friends and family. He's such a good person, and I feel like it was just a mistake. I'm not sure why I'm writing this, but it feels good. Hopefully, I truly have forgiven him, and I'm not just a coward. Your podcast is opening a lot of feelings I've been dying to let out, so I appreciate you immensely. Thank you for your time, and have a great day. And I emailed her back, and um, 
And I said, I'm so star- sorry that that stuff happened to you. It must be incredibly complicated. And I encourage you to talk to a therapist or check out an incest survivor support group because the ripples from incest go way, way deeper than we ever imagine. And the healing isn't necessarily about um, bringing somebody else to, I don't know what the word is, justice or making them see their part in something, uh, although that can certainly be a part of it sometimes. The real important stuff is talking to somebody and letting those feelings out. And that's why I'm a a big fan of therapy. This is from the Happy Moments survey and filled out from um, a person who calls themselves a hamster wheel. And uh, they wrote, this afternoon, I woke up feeling terrible after getting in the bed at 3 a.m. but not falling asleep until the sun came up. I got out of bed and walked out of my room. Heading into the family room, I noticed toys everywhere on the floor. I walked to the couch and noticed my four-year-old nephew laying under a blanket. I leaned over and he revealed his face. He smiled and his small arms opened wide, so I leaned over and hugged him. I felt absolute love for at least that moment. I love that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Jorkus. He's straight in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, Um, has never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thought, suicide, or that I would completely fuck my life up due to relapsing on a drug addiction. Deepest, darkest secrets, prostitute as a mother, drug dealer as a father. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being invited to a MILF's house and having her have her way with me, being totally submissive having a beautiful woman over the age of 25 and massaging all of her body. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Sure, why not? Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? (laughs) He just wrote a boner. I can't believe we haven't gotten that before. Um, This is uh, from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dora Matt. She is... Straight in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse, and uh, one of them she reported, and then the other one was uh, our favorite. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, When we got together with the listeners in Toronto, one of them commented, they said, have you ever read one where they checked off some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts, where it isn't clearly abuse, and it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare that we we get one where somebody isn't underestimating what, what happened to them. Anyways, she writes, I was dating my college boyfriend who I'm now back together with after a few years broken up. He never introduced me to his friends as his girlfriend, which is always kind of shaming, but I never brought it up. Finally, we ran into one of his friends uh, out of town and waiting for the introduction that never came. Somehow the topic of small breasts came up. I have small breasts, which I've always been self-conscious about my boyfriend said nah those aren't small titties these are small titties and he hit my boob from underneath right in the middle of the sidewalk i was so aghast i don't remember if i even did anything same boyfriend now once tried to titty fuck me not really possible with my chest i made it clear that wasn't cool and started crying in bed um eventually while we were still naked he never f- never figured it out. He also doesn't really respect my boundaries if I say no to things despite that he knows I've been raped. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Suicide. I would never actually kill myself, but I think a lot about how nice it would be to just not exist. Um, 
Deepest, darkest secrets. I say I love you to my boyfriend, and it's true, but since I've started remembering some of the more fucked up things he's done, I really mean I love you, which really means I don't trust you or me to stand up for myself. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Group sex where I can flow from partner to partner or of cheating on my boyfriend with almost anybody. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? My boyfriend knows I want to have a three-way someday, but he doesn't know how much shame and pain I have around his misogyny. Douchebag stuff aside, a lot of what he thinks and says is really misogynistic. I won't cheat on him now that we're committed, though I've fooled around with people when we weren't really serious. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I hate myself for my lack of a spine to tell him he's a dick or break up with him. Therapy, therapy, therapy. I can't recommend it highly enough for, or a support group. You know, this might be a love addiction, but when you're with somebody that treats you like shit and you can't leave them, that's a really serious thing. That is, some people fucking die from that. It is every bit as real as a drug or alcohol addiction. And I'm not saying that you are an addict, but clearly there's something that is keeping you from standing up for yourself. And this guy needs to be stood up to because he does sound like um, a seriously abusive person who probably can't see that he's abusive. Um, this is from the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Stan Proud. He is straight in his 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thought. I think about other men loving me sexually. Deepest, darkest secrets. I have watched gay porn. I have grinded with another guy. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I sometimes wish that a man would dominate me. Not having a father figure, I feel like I want another man to control me and love me deeply. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I wouldn't consider telling anyone these fantasies because I feel ashamed and feel like they are wrong to think about. Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? At first, I feel like this is what I want most, but then I feel disgusting and worthless. Oh, man, stand proud. I just want to give you a big, warm hug and tell you that you are okay exactly as you are with all your thoughts and feelings. Those are normal and healthy, and stop beating yourself up and embrace your sexuality, whatever it is, whatever it is, if it's not hurting anybody else. And I know I sound like a broken record, but um, I feel like I can't say it enough. It just kills me that there are people whose sexuality hurts nobody and they allow other people to brainwash them into thinking that they're bad or wrong or whatever i really hope that you can find peace um and it's totally doable you might have to move out of wherever it is you're living or cut contact with the people that shame you but um anyway uh same survey filled up by a guy named keith uh he is straight uh and qualifies but by or pan curious. He's in his 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I told my parents about it once I realized what had happened, which was a few years after the event. I remembered the acts involved, involved but never remembered who did it. Um, which, by the way, is, is common. Uh, people will often remember, like, 
somebody taking their clothes off and then everything is kind of a blank after that. And um, I think that's our brain's way of protecting ourselves from from the pain. Um, but therapy can help bring some of that that stuff back up. And it, it it's it's not masochistic to bring that stuff up. It's actually freeing, though painful in the short term. Um, very freeing in the long run. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I've always struggled with violent thoughts. I have an effective way of dealing with them today, and I don't so, uh, so, so much feel ashamed of them as I realize they are just my instinctive emotional defense mechanism at work, and I've grown fairly good at pre- processing them. However, even that gets tiring sometimes, and I often wish they would just stop. That's awesome that you are beginning to recognize that they are just thoughts, and you're not giving them wait that's uh, that makes me so happy when i hear that deepest darkest secrets a few years ago i had sex with my wife while she was asleep i had been drinking at the time which is no excuse and in my deluded mind i really thought she was kind of awake and was into it she had suggested it in the past and i had done it with her once before and she woke up during and said she liked it however this time when she woke up she was very upset i quit as soon as i realized she was upset but she was still upset and eventually said that i had raped her I got offended and told her I couldn't live in the same house with someone who thought I was a rapist and she took it back. Since then, I've been in a support group and made amends to her, but I only ever apologized for acting selfish sexually. I still can't stand to use the word rape. I also feel like I manipulated her into taking the rape accusation back. In any case, I've never tried to do it again, but I still can't shake the idea that I may be a rapist. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Oral sex. I fantasize almost exclusively about both giving and receiving oral sex with women, men, and transsexuals. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Yes, I'm not ashamed of my sexual fantasies and have told a couple of people, but I avoided telling my now estranged wife as, simply put, I never trusted her and felt it was something she would use against me, mainly the bi-pan-curious stuff, I mean. Um... Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Odd mix. In one way, I feel sexually liberated by them, but feel um, fear that too many others wouldn't understand and would judge me. Um, And then he has a topic suggestion. Meeting a parent in adulthood um, after either never seeing them or only knowing them briefly as a child. I feel the subject gets covered in popular media one thing and for me the biggest thing that gets left out is the weirdness of it not feeling the way you thought you would feel um and how they compared to your idea of them the lack of feeling a connection to someone you thought you should feel a connection towards that sort of thing well i want to thank you for sharing that suggestion for a a topic and uh, any listeners in the la area that have that kind of a uh, story about meeting a parent later in life um I would be interested in recording with you. Um, and about the thing with your with your wife, I, I'm unclear if it's your wife or your ex-wife, but um, yeah, I, th- I think a support group or therapy would really, really help to, to talk about that. Because that's, um, you know, that stuff that's where, where we don't know where the truth is. It just talking about it sometimes is the only way out of the, that, that gray cloud to begin to make sense of it. Um, this is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Melinda. She's straight in her 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, 
was sexually abused and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. When I was a kid, I used to think a lot about acting out my abuse with other kids. Deepest, darkest secrets. At eight years old, I used to masturbate until the point of pain while imagining my abuser like I was doing it for him. I also used to eat weird things as a kid, like a ton of granulated sugar or sometimes even Crisco. I remember how gross it tasted and that I didn't like it, but I couldn't stop. I didn't understand why I did those weird and shameful things. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've tried to act out power and control fantasies and have them go very terribly wrong. I once asked a boyfriend to choke me during sex and it got rather violent and scary. He got really freaked out and he wasn't a tame or together sort of guy and said he never wanted to do that again. The power and control issues make me want to play with losing control and gaining it. Uh, I feel better if I'm in control, but I don't like dominating someone because it doesn't feel good or respectful to them uh, or myself. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Yes, I would consider telling a partner or close friend about my fantasies. I like, the by the way, that she just repeated the entire sentence back. That's so polite. I can't be in a relationship with someone and not be honest and open about my issues in my past. That's what my 20s were for. That's hilarious. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Acting on power and control issues make me loathe myself. I want to be valued and respected by my significant other, which is why I've been taking a break from dating and working on understanding myself. That's awesome. You sound like you're in a, in a good place and uh, really heading towards um, an even better place. I, I love. Thank you for sharing that stuff. Um, this is same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Alby. She is uh, bisexual in her 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, and then she just writes, that stuff's really hard to talk about. And then she put a little frown. Um, darkest thoughts. I fantasize sometimes about becoming institutionalized that I should stop trying to get better and just fall to pieces so I can go into hospital and be taken care of until I eventually kill myself. Even though I am actively pursuing recovery, I have a strong belief that I will eventually die from suicide. I'm no longer terrified that this sickness will kill me. I can accept that this is an extremely likely outcome for me, and in a sense, I actually forgive myself. I feel bad for believing this, but also it gives me peace. Maybe the belief that it's always an option for me is something of a relief. I want to die by my own hand anyway. I want to control even in death. Sorry, mum. I hope you die first, I guess. Sorry. Um, deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and by the way, um, for years, decades, uh, I was convinced that my death, and, and I'm still not convinced that it won't be by my own hand. I don't feel that way today. I by 90% of the time I don't feel that way but I think that's one of the things of living with mental illness is you f almost feel like it's a like there's a tiger in a cage and the door's unlocked but the tiger doesn't know it <laughs> and it's just is it going to bump that door open you know it's anyway I I relate to that um and many times have I wanted especially when I confronted the stuff that my mom did to me um, and really gave it weight. Uh, I I wanted to go into a hospital and just collapse because I just I just wanted to. It it seemed like the only almost like I was uh, like an anvil that that was 
being held at a great height and it's just like can we just let gravity you know take over because this is just too tiring to keep up in the air anyway uh deepest darkest secrets i drank my older brother's pee exclamation point oh my god exclamation point he was peeing in the front garden and i just like put my mouth there and drank some i was like six or something why did i do that also once or twice i kissed my dog's butthole just to gross someone out also when i was a child i now respect my pet's personal areas that's hilarious um i you know i There are so many people that have touched their pets in ways that, whatever you want to call it, bring them shame, that they think it's like the worst thing in the world. And uh, that's just, I re- I've read thousands of these surveys, and there are so many people that have, you know, I think that's part of being a kid is just like, you know, exploring your boundaries and your comfort zone and all that stuff. Anyway, um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Pretty common ones, I guess, about being used and humiliated by a bunch of guys. I have a fantasy about a teacher having a weird sort of dom-sub relationship with me with the permission of my, quote, dad, who's really into it. In my head, it's not a likeness of my real dad at all. Gotta make that hugely clear, haha. In my head, he's almost the opposite. And with the teacher, it has to be a high school English teacher. No other type of teacher will work. I've tried making him a science teacher, and it doesn't do it for me. That's kind of strange, I've got to admit. My other go-to is where I'm, like, owned by some rich guy, and he basically wheels me out at parties for all of his friends to fuck. And they are basically just, like, really rude to me, and I just do nothing. By the way, um, I sometimes have uh you know mommy fantasies but it's it's um if it's usually a a person you know an imaginary person sometimes somebody in real life that has the opposite qualities of of my mom so i i i totally get that and um would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Uh, not really. I wish I had nicer fantasies. I don't want to explore that side of my sexuality too much, especially not with a man. If anything like that happened in real life, I would have a panic attack and possibly be ruined by it. Um, did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Oh yeah, I feel ashamed. I worry that I've got an incest fetish or something, which is totally wrong and awful. By the way, a fetish would indicate that it's the only thing that you can get off to. So it that it doesn't sound like that's a fetish with you. And a fetish, from what I understand, is an object. Um, you know, I think you're being way too hard on yourself, which is ironic coming from me. Um, continuing. Uh, I worry that I have an incest fetish or something, which is totally wrong and awful. Like maybe I want to fuck my dad. Erg. Barf, barf. I also hate that I fantasize about men. I never actively pursue relationships with men because I don't trust them. I think they're aggressive and dangerous. And I also think, what does it say about me that the only way I can get off is imagining being treated like shit and being used? Am I ashamed of having sexual desires that I have to fantasize exclusively about other people's desires being fulfilled? Yikes. There's a great book um, about sexual fantasies. I think Jack Morin is the guy that, that wrote it. And it's basically the gist of the book is that we create our, there has to be a moral impediment for many of us to have a really powerful orgasm in our fantasy. It has to be something that goes against the grain. Um, 
in us. So just know that, people out there that are beating yourself up. Um, there seems to be something in us that wants to create that hurdle that we have to jump over. And uh, start loving yourself, man. I don't know what that voice was, but I am putting it away for the holidays. I did not like that. Um, same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Drew. Um, he is male, and then he qualifies um, after belonging to a system that's biologically female. So I imagine what he's saying is that he was he was born female. Um, he's male, but he was born into a female body. Um he is bisexual in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse, and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. The darkest, I've thought about taking a knife and carving through my skin until I could get to the source of the pain. Wow, that is deep. Um, deepest, darkest secrets. The worst secrets are the things I've done. This is where it gets complicated because I've always been the, quote, enforcer of the system, and it's been my job to keep order, so I figured out that younger ones who cry all the time cry because they're afraid, but there's a tipping point of being afraid where they'll stop crying and be quiet, and I needed them to be quiet because quiet was safer. It kept order. So I became the thing they were afraid of, and I reenacted the abuse that broke everything in the first place, and I didn't hate it. I liked having that role, that power, and letting them be afraid of me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, this is terrible to admit because I don't have many fantasies at all. Um, the, the print is kind of fucked it up on this. I don't have... something fantasies at all. I have rape fantasies. Um, I fantasize about having complete power and control over the other person having her tied down and immobilized and crying and in pain. I don't even like typing that out. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend? Absolutely not, because I know it's all programming from having been raped when I was younger. Identifying with the rapist all these years, I just find that repulsive. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? They pretty much make me feel worthless as a human being and that I have no redeeming value. Now oh, that breaks my heart. And I just want to send you a big hug. And nobody, nobody is, is worthless. I, I truly don't believe that. I think everybody has redeeming qualities. And the ones that people label as not having any redeeming qualities, I think um, the, the injury to their soul is just bigger and deeper. But people can heal. And I, I hope you... I hope you find healing and some peace and some self-love. Um, and I'm going to put on my broken record and say, go to a support group, go to therapy, find the love that you deserve. And finally, this is uh, from the Happy Moments, and this was filled out by a punk queen who uh, I think we heard from him earlier uh, before the interview. Um, he'd, he'd shared about... Um, Oh, I forgot what his struggle in the sentence was. Oh, about uh, his anorexia, um, hating that he was 140 pounds and why can't he weigh 120. And his happy moment is, the first time I landed in a foreign country and went to England, I was 18. I wasn't called a faggot for 28 days. That was the longest stretch at that point. My mom used to indulge me in my feminine pursuits as a little boy. She'd paint my face, take me to jazzercise with her, 
ask me to design her a dress, or teach me how to braid her hair. Inside, I felt like she was seeing me for who I really was, a little girl. That was the best feeling I had as a child. That is one of the most beautiful things that I have ever read on this podcast. Your mom. Oh, what a beautiful human being. That's, I'm just, I'm just speechless picturing that, that mom, you know, despite our sexist society and all that bullshit that tells us that boys have to be a certain way that she could, she could see that and just so fully embrace who you were. And I think I'm fucking jealous of it too, because my mom has always tried to mold me into what she wants to be. She wants me to be. And um, maybe that's why it touches me so deeply, but what an awesome, awesome one to end the the show on. Thank you guys for listening. Um, I hope if you've listened to this episode and gotten this far, you uh, you feel less alone and um, and you know that there's hope and we just gotta ask for help. And um, just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.